Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A cloud computing security program established in 2011 continues to present difficulties to government and industry. We're talking about FedRAMP, the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program. It's a way of establishing that cloud computing service companies are secure. But more than 12 years in, the program still has cost uncertainty, and agencies don't always use FedRAMP-approved vendors. That's from the Government Accountability Office. For the latest look-see, we turn to the GAO's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues, Dave Hinchman. Dave, good to have you back. Tom, thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. And FedRAMP rolls on and on, and I guess more vendors are getting certified under FedRAMP. It's a complicated process for them. So for the government... You found issues with them sponsoring vendors to become certified, actually using certified vendors. And on the vendor side, you found uncertainty and uncertain costs of getting certified. So what's what's going on here? So I think that you really zeroed in on the key aspects of what we found in our study. You know, we were asked to do three things, sort of do a survey of who's using uh, FedRAMP for what reason? How much does FedRAMP cost an agency? Conversely, how much does it cost one of the, the cloud providers? But then also, what are the challenges that both the agencies and the providers are facing? And what, an o, what are OMB and GSA doing to look at that? And I think you found, I, I think you zeroed in that you're right. It's The process takes a long time. There's a lot of uncertainty. People aren't always sure about what they're supposed to do. And that's on both the federal and the private sector side for the service providers. And I think there are some signs that some of that's gonna start to clear up over the next couple of years, but right now it certainly is an ongoing issue. And it sounds like there may not be enough of the industry that's FedRAMP certified because you found that several agencies, at least the CFO large department agencies, use for cloud services companies that don't have FedRAMP certification. Yeah, and it's hard to tell what the root cause of that problem is. Certainly, there was an issue with OMB not monitoring the use of of authorized providers. Um, They admit that that's been a problem. They have put into place a process to more closely monitor that. The process was just coming online as we were going to print, so we don't have any good visibility into what that looks like, so that should make a difference. But I think that there's also just because it can cost a lot of money, People get into the FedRAMP, they think, hey, this is great for our business, this is the private sector side, and then they discover this onerous federal bureaucracy, and they realize it's maybe not all that it's cut up to be, that it can actually be a long, expensive process to become a certified provider. And discuss the issue or the process of a agency sponsoring a company. They don't pay for their FedRAMP certification, but how does that all work? Yeah, there are two different avenues that an agency and a provider can take. One is a more centralized process called the Joint Authorization Board, which is established when the program was created, was codified with the uh, FedRAMP Authorization Act that was just recently passed. And then there's the agency authorization pass, which is where the agency takes on this process on its own. And real quick, the Joint Authorization Board is a centralized function, people appointed by OMB, and service providers sort of offer themselves up as we would like to become authorized. They go through security assessments. They go through the centralized process. Once you're approved, then you're an authorized provider that agencies can contract with you. For the agency authorization path, this is maybe uh, an agency has a longstanding relationship with the cloud provider, so they want to maintain that. 
And so the provider goes through this one-on-one -on -one process with the agency itself. They get assessed by an outside third party, and then ultimately they're authorized. And both can be take a long time. We've heard reports of stakeholders in the process not being responsive, and this is at the FedRAMP level, uh, which you know creates uncertainty plus the cost issue where no one's ever really sure what this is going to cost. Right. That's an issue for industry is the going through the assessment. What are the costs? What are the cost components for industry since it's a government appointed group of people that are doing the assessment? Yeah. Well, Tom, I can't tell you that. <laughs> and that was one of the things we found um, when we went and talked to agencies, you know, hey, what does a FedRAMP authorization cost? We couldn't get a solid answer, and there's no good data available. In fact, most of the numbers we did get were actually after-the-fact cost estimates where an agency had to go back and try to tease out the numbers. And that's because OMB hasn't required agencies to track the discrete costs involved in getting the FedRAMP authorization. You know, we got some estimates that range from tens of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. And I think with that cost uncertainty, and you mentioned this at the top of our conversation, is probably going to scare people away because if you don't know how much something is going to cost, you're going to be really hesitant about jumping in and, and trying to get part of that. And so I think that was one of our key recommendations is that OMB require agencies to discreetly track the cost of these authorizations so that they can standardize that. And more importantly, OMB can really determine whether this is creating more cost-effective cloud services, which is one of FedRAMP's goals from the very beginning. We're speaking with Dave Hinchman. He's Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the GAO. And what about the issue of agencies trusting the certification that someone has that they got through another agency sponsor, that it's good enough for their own agency? That was the basic premise of FedRAMP to begin with. Yeah, and that's not working as well as, as I think as people would like it to be. And I don't know that we were really able to get to the root of what that is. Um, I think when you look at, in our report, we discussed these six challenges that people reported us. And I think if you look at sort of the currents that run through those challenges, it has a lot to do with not great communication within the program and people just not really understanding what they're getting into. And so, you know, you've got this as you mentioned, you know, maybe one company that has the centralized certification, so anyone can sign up with that. But why aren't they doing that? Well, there are things like agencies say they don't have sufficient resources to do this. Uh, they don't get timely responses from the FedRAMP program, which I mentioned. Sometimes they find service providers that aren't fully prepared to provide the cloud service that they're supposedly ready to do. Uh, and as well as internally, things like finding an agency sponsor as well as sort of more obscure things like uh, meeting FedRAMP technical and process requirements, which is required like agencies and cloud providers to totally change their security infrastructure to be compliant. Right. Agencies have never had much trouble finding unique requirements of their own that therefore we can't use this other certification that agency B has, has established. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I think that really creates an environment where there's a need for more standardization. And OMB has mentioned this in the guidance that they issued for public comment this past fall, comments closed at the end of December, the guidance will be coming out soon. They're talking about up-leveling some of those requirements so that you don't get as caught up in the minutia of agency as this, agency A has this requirement, agency B has this requirement. And I think, you know, I'm cautiously hopeful that Taking that sort of higher level view is going to help more people get in on these uh, 
companies that already have existing authorizations. And the cloud service providers reported, and I'm reading from your summary, they faced issues including lack of consistency when engaging with third-party assessment organizations, outsiders. It strikes me this is like a big lesson learned for the Defense Department's CMMC program, which is entirely reliant upon third-party assessment organizations across a much wider swath of industry than the FedRAMP program. So it strikes me this is something DOD ought to pay attention to. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it's a hard challenge. If you look at, uh, in our report, we have a table where we talk about different efforts that OMB and GSA are taking to address these six challenges we identified. That problem with the third-party assessment organizations is the one thing where there's nothing currently underway to address that. And so I'm not sure people really know how to get at that issue. And, um, and so I think you're right. Linking that to the CMCC, uh, or excuse me, CMC is really important because that's what they're going to be relying on as well. And is your sense FedRAMP officials at GSA, I mean, they're earnest. They've been at this for, for a dozen years now, generally agreed with what you found out and they're trying to get around these problems? I think I mentioned the, the monitoring program that's coming online uh, to look at monitoring with compliance. They've talked that they are going, once they identify cloud instances that are not part of FedRAMP, they're going to start moving that into and getting them authorized, as well as the changes in the guidance that are coming out uh, or the, the new guidance that's coming out from OMB. I think that's a positive change. There's also bringing on additional staff, which we identified as a critical issue, as well as the need for automating some of the security processes. They're working on bringing that online as well. And maybe people in the government and people in the industry may not realize that when you talk about the piece of industry that needs to be FedRAMP authorized, it's not just the prime commercial cloud providers. You know, a million dollars to get certified or a couple of million, you know, for Amazon, that's like 10 seconds worth of revenue. But for many of the – there's a huge ecosystem of small cyber suppliers and other types of suppliers, integrators that provide cloud services to get you to those big primes. For them, it can be cumbersome and expensive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's a really good point. It's not just the big names we hear about in the news. It's the smaller – better known minority-owned businesses, small businesses um, that litter the federal landscape. You know, in fiscal year 22, uh, the federal government obligated $7 billion for cloud services. In fact, if you look at the numbers, we track authorizations went from 926 cloud authorizations in 2019 to almost 1,500 in 2023. So the government is moving into the cloud, and that's not all with these big names we talked about. And so I think it's really incumbent on OMB and GSA to move FedRAMP to a place where it's standardized, where someone who wants to get into it can truly understand what they're getting into. And that's looking at the cost, knowing the process they're going to have to do and making sure that that whole process moves as quickly and efficiently as possible. Dave Hinchman is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his cloud report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing 
what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time. So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. 
your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. 
And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.